In today's episode, we arrive at Exodus chapter 10. God continues to get glory over the gods of Egypt. Now with plagues of locust and darkness, these hardships affect the common Egyptians while leaving the Hebrews relatively unaffected. Even Pharaoh's servants are urging him to compromise, but he still wants to do things on his own terms instead of submitting to the one true God. Will Pharaoh finally let God's people go? Good morning. Today is Monday, November 21st, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word. Thank you for starting your week off with us. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is sponsored by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Learn about all of their translating and publishing work at lhfmissions.org. To help us explore chapter 10 and the 8th and 9th plagues, my guest this morning is the Reverend Dr. Burnell Eckhart, pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church in Kewanee, Illinois. Pastor Eckhart, good morning and welcome to Thy Strong Word. Good morning. Uh, I look forward to this. It's, it's nice to be uh, doing this with you today. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you on the program. We have been going through Exodus, obviously, for, uh, you know, about eight episodes now. This will be the eighth episode. We've gotten into the plagues, and it's been a fascinating study looking at how God is using the plagues to uh, obviously say something about himself over and against the gods of the Egyptians. But he's fulfilling his promise that he would redeem the Hebrew people and that's what we're seeing take place as we go through. But before we dive into chapter 10 and these, these next plagues, uh, if you would take just a few minutes and share with our listeners just a little bit about your congregation and what God's doing through your ministry. Sure. Uh, I have been here at uh, St. Paul's in Kewanee, Illinois for, oh boy, about 27 and a half years Uh I become I'm, right now I'm tied with the longest tenured pastor here. This congregation's been here since I think 1848, so I've been here a long time, and uh, it's it's been a real a blessing to be here. The congregation is small, has become small because Kiwani has uh, lost population, as a lot of mid midwestern towns have. Uh, but we keep trucking on, and we and it's fine for me having a smaller parish because. I've been around for a while, and I don't mind the, the lighter load, especially in view of the fact that I am also the editor of Gottesdienst, and that takes up a significant amount of time as well. Um, I've been dealing with Gottesdienst uh, since, well, pretty much since its inception. I was the editor since 1995, I think, or four, when I, when I moved here, as a matter of fact. And so that's taken up some time as well. And the congregation has been very supportive of that. So I'm glad about that. Uh, we get along well here, and I'm, I'm very pleased to be here. Well, that's great. Now, we had uh, one of your editors on the program, uh, the Reverend Larry Bean. Right. Um, and right. I remember he told me then, about the I, whole thing. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad that he's sharing the word. I, we had uh, he had a web address so that people could get more information about Goddess Dainst. And uh, if you could tell us that web address, but of course, spell it out for us, for those of us who aren't so great in our uh, German. Yeah, well, I should also mention that Gottesdienst is the only German word in the whole thing. <laughs> it's the German for worship uh, because we we like to to remember our heritage as Lutherans. And that's a good way to begin doing it. Gottesdienst is spelled G-O-T-T-E-S. 
D-I-E-N-S-T. It's a compound German word, which means God's service. It's simply the German word for worship. And so the website is gottesdienst.org. And if you go there, you can see, uh, you can, of course, subscribe. We have a quarterly journal that is either individual subscriptions or bulk subscriptions for congregations. And we've been at it since 1992, quarterly, sending it out uh, across the Senate and indeed uh, in various places in the world. In addition to that, over the last 10 or 15 years, we've added a web presence, and that now includes a blog, a very active blog, which uh, you can find at our website and you can subscribe to it so that it sends notifications to your email every time a new post goes up. And the new posts usually go up, oh, at least every three days, sometimes more often, and it's been very active and very well received. And now since then, we also have a podcast, a couple of a couple of podcasts go out, I think, every week or every other week. And that's with uh, Pastor Broughton. Jason Broughton is the host of that. We have uh, Thinking Out Loud, which is a podcast looking forward to the coming Sunday with another pastor. And then we have various topics for his other. There are two threads to that podcast, and that's also been very well received. So we are, I would say, a pretty strong web presence as well as continuing the print journal. And it's been very rewarding in a number of ways for, well, I think we have about 15 or so editors and contributors, and it's been it's been growing. So we're very pleased to see that. It's our goal at Godestines to restore a respectful, dignified, liturgical worship, which in some respects has been suffering ever since, I'd say, the 1980s or even before that. Uh, we are part of the element of the seminary uh, awakening that happened beginning back in the 60s and 70s, rediscovering the Lutheran confessions. And with that rediscovery, also the importance of uh, respecting and honoring and receiving the Blessed Sacrament and doing this so, doing so in a dignified way. So we're encouraging people to recover and uphold and support the Lutheran liturgy for that reason. So that's just a sort of a nutshell of what we're doing. Well, I'm glad you shared that with us, and I encourage listeners to check that out. Now, for our text today, we are going to get into some plagues. Uh, so it's it's been fascinating so far. I know you're going to bring a lot of great insight to the conversation. But before we start, would you please begin our time together with a short prayer? Oh, sure. Um, let us pray. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, who has given unto us thy word, grant that we may so hear, mark, read, and learn it, that we may be comforted and strengthened for the Christian journey and life until we meet with Christ our Lord in the everlasting kingdom, which who liveth and reigneth with the Father and the Holy Ghost, ever one God, world without end. Amen. Amen. So uh, before I read any of our texts, would you like to catch us up? Uh, you know, what's been going on? Set the stage for the eighth plague. Yeah, well, up, up till now, of course, we've had Moses going into Pharaoh at the uh, command of uh, the command of uh, God with the burning bush in the wilderness to 
get is the Israelites to be freed from captivity under Pharaoh. So he goes in and talks to talks to Pharaoh and he says, let the people go and worship. And Pharaoh keeps refusing. And then a plague comes and Pharaoh says, okay. And he says, go ahead, go. And then he, the, the plague goes away. Moses, God through Moses makes the plague go away. And then Pharaoh generally changes his mind and he hardens his heart. And God hardens his heart as one way of putting it as well. Uh, and it keeps happening over and over again. So we've had the, the previous plagues, which I know you've talked about. We have the plague of blood. It's interesting that these plagues, uh, we'll get to the last plague, there's also a plague of blood of a kind because it's the death of the firstborn. So the blood becomes a sort of a bookend thing for the, for the, ten, uh, the 10 plagues. Actually, there's nine and then the plague of death, which is sort of a capsule, a separate issue. So you got the plague of blood, and then you got the plague of boil. Um, so you got the plague of frogs come next, and then lice, and then flies, and then uh, pestilence, then boils, uh, then hail, and now we're up to the eighth one, which is locusts, and the ninth one being darkness. And those nine plagues, I might say, since we're looking at all of them, are kind of a similar way uh, similar to the creation in a sense that God likes, if I could put this crudely, God likes working in threes because God is three persons. We see this in the in the days of creation. you got seven days, but the seventh day is really set apart. And I would say also here you've got the, the nine plagues and then the tenth plague being set apart. So we are right now on the eighth plague and the ninth plague in Exodus Exodus chapter 10. So that's sort of a brief overview. That's where we're at. I mean, I love, I love uh, <laughs> explaining this to children because it's kind of like a, uh, um, uh, kind of like a, you could almost make a uh, rhyme out of it. You know, uh, Pharaoh says, okay, go and go. And then he changes his mind and the kids, you know, kind of get a kick out of that. I've, I've liked uh, going through the different plagues. Pharaoh says, okay. Then he changes his mind and it keeps happening and happening and happening up until the end. And even then when, you know, Israel finally goes, they go in haste. And after they're gone, Pharaoh changes his mind again, but it's too late. He goes after them and then comes the, the great exodus, of course. Pharaoh is nothing if not predictable and consistent in his uh, waffling and wavering. You know, he he kind of admits a little bit of a sin on his part, but then it doesn't matter because he then refuses to submit to Yahweh. Sin is irrational, and we we definitely have an incarnation of irrational sin in Pharaoh. Mm, yes. Well, I'm going to read uh, just chunk by chunk. I'm going to start with chapter 10, and I'm going to read verses 1 through let's say one through 11 here we go then the lord said to moses go into pharaoh for i have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants that i may show thee signs of mine among them and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how i have dealt harshly with the egyptians and what signs i have done among them that you may know that i am the lord so Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. 
For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land, so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and he went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. And he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord will be with you if, if ever I let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. All right, so here we have Pharaoh. Once again, he's presented with the same, you know, Moses isn't, isn't compromising. Let my people go is what Yahweh, their God, has said. That's what Moses wants to happen. We're going to go. We're going to go three days. We're not going to stay in Egypt. We're going to go three days into the desert. And we're not going to just take some of us. We're going to take all of us. But what's interesting to me, brother, is that once again, God reminds Moses and us that he has already hardened Pharaoh's heart or Pharaoh has already hardened his heart against God. You know, he, he basically tells him, go do this, but it's not going to work. So Moses, for the, I guess, eighth time now, is going into Pharaoh knowing that Pharaoh is not going to give in. So I just think that's fascinating as we continue to look at how God is dealing with the with the Egyptians. Uh, what do you think? What's going on here? Yeah, I think that helps to to know. I'm just fascinated by the uh, the way in which this is worded. That God says, "I have hardened Pharaoh's heart," and of course, this happens throughout the plagues. And you can say, of course, that first Pharaoh hardens his own heart, and then God hardens his heart, but. That's as, as far as that's true. I mean, God, we, we're not what we call double predestinationists here, like the strict Calvinists and say, you know, if God hardens your heart, you can't help it. You're done. You God has predestined that you will go to hell. There's there's none of that in Scripture. Uh, but here, it is, while it's clear that Pharaoh hardens his own heart and Pharaoh is responsible for his own sin. I think for this to be worded off, off and on throughout Exodus, that God hardens his heart, is a way of God comforting Moses, even in the most dire of circumstances, that he is still in control of all of this. You know, uh, it, it kind of reminds me of the crucifixion in this way, that it is the fault of Pilate and the Jews and the people who ganged up against Jesus, that he got crucified. But of course, he wanted to be crucified for the sin of the world. So mysteriously, enigmatically, he is behind the worst devices of sinful men. And he uses evil, even evil, even the worst of evil, the crucifixion of Jesus, for crying out loud, to bring about his good purposes. This means that God is in 
charge and in command of everything, even in a fallen world. And I think we see that in the, in the idea here that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. So there's that. And there's also well, the idea uh, of comfort. I was going to say the idea of comfort is an important one to point out yes. because if you're, if you're Moses and you've gone time and time again to Pharaoh and you know, you have God on your side, you, you know, that there's only one God, you know, that he is uh, getting glory over the uh, gods of Egypt. And you know that he is uh, the one that's ultimately in charge, but Pharaoh seems to be just not listening to him. Doesn't care. Pharaoh seems to hold all the cards in his hands because, you know, they're the one that wants something. Pharaoh's the one who has to say the word. But naturally, you know, God doesn't have to go through all this rigmarole in order to free the people of Israel. He's doing this for a purpose. So he reminds Moses, as you pointed out, that the hardening of his heart, this is something I've decreed. And, and again, we aren't to read farther in that. For those who may not understand listening at home, double predestination is this idea that God has already decided who's going to heaven, who's going to hell before the foundation of the world. And therefore, you know, your only purpose in being a Christian is to find out or try to find out. You never really can know for sure. Try to find out, you know, which section are you in? And it's very strange that churches who believe this still bother to proclaim the gospel. We're glad they do, but, but it wasn't really matter because God's already decided. Yeah, that's, that's not that's what deadly. the Bible says. It's a deadly uh, doctrine, which of course we right. repudiate. Indeed. And right, I, so in this case, you know, God is in control. God is in control, but he's also, you know, not the, 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 the cause, the source of, of Pharaoh's, you know, unwillingness to submit. That's just Pharaoh's own sin. So it's a both end. And, and it, it is, it does bring comfort to Moses, I'm sure. Right, right, exactly. I also think that what's going on here is a demonstration of what Pharaoh's sin is the result of in his, in his case. He's a very powerful man. In fact, I, it just occurred to me as we were talking that I believe this Pharaoh, I don't I know for sure, I think he's Amenhotep the second or the third or something. The uh, the uh, critical the critical uh, Bible critics who don't regard scripture as being the, the word of God like to say uh, to suggest that this happened in the waning of his of of Egypt's power and the Red Sea was really the sea of reeds and they make up you know, possible ways in which this miracle could have happened naturally without it being a supernatural event. And of course, we reject all of that. And not only so, but I believe if my memory serves, the, the, uh, the more faithful way and uh, proper way to look at the history is to see it as more likely a time of the zenith of Pharaoh's power. This was a very strong time in the history of Egypt. So this Pharaoh is, is powerful and he knows he is. And so he's not going to let some Israelites come in and just go. He's, he's their owner. He is the, he is practically a God in his own mind. So I think this is going on too. So that's why he you know, tries to negotiate with Moses here a little bit. Well, yes, I'll let you go, but not entirely. And still Pharaoh's playing this game of power 
thinking he actually has even a shred of power before the almighty God. Yeah, he's certainly being affected by the plagues. If nothing else, his people are turning against him. And what good is being a God King if no one worships you anymore? <laughs> but, you know, we had another guest who pointed out, and I thought it was a great illustration. And I'm sure that you would agree with it. There's a reason why Moses does not give us the name of this particular Pharaoh. So, you know, some people say um, it is uh, a Minhotep, which is, you said, the second. Uh, some say Ramses the second, some say Ramses the third. Uh, but I, I agree with you wholeheartedly that to look at this as sort of the the waning the waning power of a of a pharaoh who's failing in his ability to keep his country together is certainly inconsistent with what's going on. It's probably better to understand this if we should decide to look back in history and try to make the connections that this is one of these pharaohs who there was a dynasty change right around the time of the beginning of what we would call Exodus. And this dynasty change is trying to get rid of a lot of what was put in place by the previous family, so to speak, of pharaohs. And so not only is he all powerful and thinks himself a God King, he also wants to set himself apart from his predecessors. So that's why if they remembered uh, Joseph, of all, they're they're ready to just dispense with anything that had to do with them. And these Hebrews are growing in number. And yeah, he, he makes a lot of irrational decisions to try to keep them under control. You know, we're going to enslave them. Actually, we're going to try to kill them first. And then if that doesn't really work, we're going to try to enslave them. And then we're going to try to kill the ones we've enslaved and reduce our population. It, it just isn't making a lot of sense. And so he is acting so irrationally, just as you might think, a megalomaniac, narcissistic God King ruler would act. But the, the focus ends up being this Pharaoh who thinks that he'll be remembered for history, from history, for, for the rest of history, is literally, in some ways, forgotten while God continues to get glory over his gods. And Moses, of course, even the Hebrew midwives are recorded for history's sake. And not this Pharaoh. And I just think that's a just punishment for him. Right. And I think, I think uh, along those lines too, what you have here is a, is an inside track, a view of what exactly sinful fallen human nature is because it's, it's self-worship. Every, every commandment goes back to the first. And here we can see this kind of writ large that this Pharaoh thinks he's God. And so, therefore, he's not about to put up with some stupid Moses, whoever he is, who can't even talk. You know, he needs Aaron to be with him and so on. He's just a humble guy. So why should I submit to his, his request? And so it keeps happening over and over again to the point now where his servants are saying, for crying out loud, our, our whole country is devastated and you're still at this. But Pharaoh refuses to change course, at least ultimately, because he can't let go of his own uh, self-esteem in an exaggerated kind of a sense. And that's, that's the struggle universally between fallen nature and the new creation in Christ, I think. I think we can see that real clearly in this narrative. Yeah, we've been connecting ourselves, unfortunately, to Pharaoh for quite a few episodes here because he is just this epitome 
of what it looks like to be a sinner. And at the same time, you know, God raises up this unlikely uh, savior and he comes and he rescues the people. Certainly, it's without doubt pointing forward to that ultimate rescue and redemption that we receive in Jesus. Um, now, for those who are keeping score at home, we've been mentioning, you know, you know, some of the gods that would be affected or, or haven't gotten glory over by Yahweh. With the locusts, they come and they're, they're eating up what was left, which, you know, reminds me of the flies when, when God sent the flies or the swarm, the scriptures say it actually doesn't say flies, but the swarm of whatever it was, we're going to say flies for now, uh, that when he took it away, he took it away down to the last one. And we, we connected that to the fact that when God redeems us, you know, that redemption is whole and complete. Well, we see here just the opposite. God through the hail and the fire, which uh, you guys at home will remember, we connected to Newt, the sky goddess, and Serapis, the god of fire and water. Well, now he's come and the locusts eat up everything that's left. And uh, now we can connect this to um, Isis, the goddess of life, and Seth, the protector of the crops. You know, everything that is uh, dramatically sacred to the Egyptians, God is showing his dominion over. And if the gods are submissive to the true God from the Egyptians' point of view, then by the time we get to the the plague of death, or as I, I like how you put on it, you know, it's sort of this separate issue, but it's the final thing. Then, then you know, people's trust in Pharaoh is probably completely eradicated by that point. But yeah, tell us about that. So you know, they the 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 locusts come, they cover the face of the land, and then they eat everything that's left. This they're ruining Egypt, as they said, it's destroyed. And I think that's an, the excellent point you brought up is that these plagues are mocking the gods of the Egyptians. And they're just they're just having a, a heyday with them by by being these kinds of plagues. And in addition, as I was thinking about these plagues, you know, I'm thinking about the the fall in the garden. Before the fall, the garden was perfect and everything was marvelous and the all the created beings were in perfect harmony including the locusts, whatever, you know, I, I sometimes joke, that I wonder what the mosquitoes ate in Eden, you know, what, <laughs> you know it was all different. But when the, right. when the fall came, all of this changed and, and creation recoiled and thorns infested the ground. And this, this fallenness of the creation, which we still see in many ways today, you know, the hurricanes, the earthquakes and all of these things, are just screaming at us that this is a fallen world, that it is not the world it was created to be. And so what God does in these plagues is uh, send to Pharaoh the unmistakable indications that he's dealing with a world that is not what it should be. These are, these are natural phenomena, but they're magnified against Pharaoh. These Locusts do eat things, and they do create uh, a headache for farmers, but not like this. I mean, this is just ramped up. This is just dialed way up. And then when when Pharaoh asks Moses to, to put them away, then bam, they're gone, just like that, to show that God, even in a fallen world here, 
is utterly in control. He can turn up the heat and he can turn down the heat just as he wants to. And in fact, he has done this in making the world uh, the way he did in such a way that when it fell, in general, there were there was death, there was mortality, there was there was badness, to put it crudely. Uh, the world now has thorns and sorrows and difficulties and death, and these things are writ large in the in the plagues. So that I think is is uh, fascinating as well. Yes, it is fascinating. And we see critics of the Bible look at these plagues and they'll say things like, well, the Nile with the frogs. Well, there are Nile frogs and there are hundreds of them when the when the uh, waters recede or the gnats and flies and boil. All of these things, as you said, are attributed to natural phenomenon. And critics of the Bible will use the fact that they're natural to suggest that it's being overblown by Moses or exaggerated. But I, I, I'm really glad that you brought it out that, yes, they're natural phenomenon, but they're natural phenomenon that's being used by God in ways that show that, well, I guess in unnatural ways so that he can demonstrate his control over nature. And it's been a long time since the magicians have even tried to replicate the plagues by this point. And Pharaoh, you know, what kind of God king is Pharaoh if he can't even control a few frogs? What kind of gods of the Egyptians are they if they can't resist the God of a slaved people an enslaved people? You know, gods were often connected to people or cities, as I've said before. And, you know, the power of the God was reflected in the power or status of the people. So the Egyptians think, wow, look at us. We're these conquerors. Yeah, we have enemies, but we're pretty powerful and in charge. Therefore, our gods must be powerful. What is the God? They only have one for one. And two, what is the God? How powerful can he be if his people are enslaved? And then here, the one true God comes forth and demonstrates that he is indeed extremely powerful. Yeah. And also uh, the um, the uh, the Pharaoh's Pharaoh's magicians, to a certain extent, could make some of these things happen. But. I think it's informative that what the magicians could do was, in to put it uh, in figurative terms, dial, dial up the heat, but they could not make it go away. They couldn't reverse it in any of the plagues. They couldn't, they couldn't drive the, the plague away. They could only imitate the plague whenever they could. So God is the God of life. He's the God of help. He's the God of of uh, comfort. He's the God of, uh, of deliverance in a way that none of these Egyptian magicians could even begin to do. And then of course, toward the end, they can't even duplicate either side of, of the miracle. If you want to call it that it's not really a miracle when it's a plague, but the, <laughs> the bad and the good, certainly God's activity, God's activity. Yeah. I, I like, I liked how the Egyptian, I mean, sorry, the Egyptian um, magicians uh, gave up about the time of the gnats. Yeah, you know, because they they could get a hand of they could get a handful of frogs to put on a little show, but they definitely couldn't get a, hand, a hold of like thousands of gnats or whatever they were. Well, I tell you what, brother, uh, I hate to break the conversation, but we are right now up against a break. So, folks listening at home, when we come back, Doctor Eckhart and I will finish up the eighth plague and move on to the ninth. So, we'll see you on the other side.
What's happening in Germany's Lutheran churches, where Iranian refugees are flooding through the doors? What new opportunities for sharing the Christian faith are arising in communist Vietnam, and how can my church play a part? Mission speakers, all LCMS pastors from the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, will come to your church, free of charge, to preach and lead Bible studies tying into this exciting work going on all around the world. To schedule your speaker, call LHF at 800-554-0723. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Dr. Burnell Eckert, pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church in Kewanee, Illinois. Now, folks, before we continue, I just want to remind you how much I love hearing from you, and I answer every email I receive. So send me your questions or your comments about today's show or anything else to pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. Well, Pastor, before the break, we were sort of in the middle of the eighth plague, uh, but we still have a little bit of text left. I'd like to read that. This is going to be verses 12 through 20, and we'll add this to our conversation. Here we go. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land and all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been seen before or will ever be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened, and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, through all the land of Egypt. Now then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord turned the wind to a very strong west wind, which lifted the locust and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people go. All right, so pastor, we have here, you know, not a single locust was left, just like the flies. When he removed it, he removed it completely. Beautiful imagery. But Interestingly enough, it seems like we have Pharaoh repenting, you know, forgive me. Um, He's repenting naturally because, well, now there's literally nothing left to eat. And even a God King or not, he's going to be facing a population that is starving. And that population is not going to be easy to control. But yeah, what else do we see here going on um, with, you know, these, these locusts? Well, I see a few things. Uh, I think it's um, worth noticing that it was an east wind and it's the isn't it the west wind that makes it go away so it pushes back from the west and so the from the east comes this this swarm of locusts which makes me think of the day of judgment and the the return of christ with the rising of the sun you know we we uh, in europe they used to always build the churches with the altar toward the on the east end 
And here we, and when we don't, at least we have a liturgical East because we believe, and in fact, uh, the common way for a cemetery to be built is with the grave having the feet toward the east facing the right direction because the east is where the sun rises from and like the rising of the sun so shall be the return of christ and the judgment upon the world so it comes from the east i think that's one thing that i'd comment on um, in addition to that um, i think that the the, uh, the plague now comes and covers the whole earth so that the land was darkened. And I, I can't help but think that that is a kind of a, a preview or a prolepsis, if you will, of the next plague, which is the plague of darkness. It's like, well, this is, this is God giving you a little picture of something that's coming in a greater way very soon. And that makes me think also of the ultimate fulfillment of uh, of these things when God who is light and in him is no darkness at all uh, the son of God is crucified and there's darkness over the land for three hours and then of course the light of the world rises from the dead and in the end in the, uh, the, the, the life of the world to come they will need no sun because Christ will be their light himself so this this uh, contrast between light and darkness is very consistent throughout Scripture. In fact, it's fascinating. If you look at back at the creation, the first day, God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God separated the light from the darkness, and he said that he saw the light that it was good. He didn't say anything about the darkness. So from the very beginning, Darkness is the absence of light, and then figuratively also, uh, the absence of Christ is death and destruction and darkness and nothing. So that, that's going on here as well. Darkness, darkness signifies the absence of help, the absence of God, and ultimately the coming of, of, of utter and eternal destruction. I think that, I think that um, John the Baptist speaks about unquenchable fire, and I think that's asbestos fire, if you look in the Greek, a, dark, a fire that burns darkly. So even that is darkness. Wow. So it's, it's almost as if our God is a God of order and not disorder, right? Imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and, and we see these connections and they're not like these, you know, supernatural, spiritual, uh, emotional connections. This is the way in which God operates in the world. And, you know, critics of the Bible, once again, will look at this plague of locusts, for instance, to just piggyback on what you said earlier and say, look, this is a natural phenomenon. You can go on YouTube and you can look at these winds of locusts coming in in the desert. You know, they, you, there's videos of it. But again, yes, it's a natural phenomenon. What is not natural is the way in which it is displayed here. You know, why does God have Moses hold out his staff? God doesn't need Moses to do that. But it connects Moses as being the spokesperson for the one true God. And then when the locusts come at the so-called command of Moses, it then comes in a way that they've never seen before and will never be again. So you can go on YouTube all day long and you can try to find the absolute worst swarm of locusts that's being blown in by the wind that you can find. 
and imagine that it's a you know a thousand times worse than that because it covered the whole land and brought in the darkness as you said so yes we know you know the church is not ignorant of the fact that these are natural phenomenons but what the critics of the bible are ignorant about is that god is using these natural phenomenons to do absolutely amazing and supernatural things well and he's also using moses these 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 things these phenomena are happening through Moses. And so Moses becomes himself a Christ figure, that God works here only through Moses. You know, Moses turns on the switch, Moses turns off the switch at God's command. And Moses is the central player in this narrative, even as he points forward to the come, his, his, very, his very office as prophet is, is foretelling the coming of the prophet like him when Christ comes and everything happens through him. I also see, uh, I also, I, I, before we get away from this, I was, I was noticing, because you brought this up, that my, Pharaoh says I have sinned. It's like, it looks like repentance to me, but it's not. I mean, we know that. It's just a false repentance. It, it reminded me of Saul. You know, later on when, when Saul comes after David, and I think twice uh, David spares him and he sees that and he repents. And it's kind of a, even in that case, a phony repentance that doesn't last very long. So this, this uh, fact of sometimes occasionally you see repentance, and I'm using scare quotes with my fingers here, showing up in the, in the scriptures. It's a phony kind of repentance. It's not genuine. It is is in appearance only. And that's certainly the case here with Pharaoh. I'm glad you pointed that out because repentance by its very definition is not just something that's, um, you know, lip service. Repentance is turning away from sin. It's, it is an activity, not just like a confession. Exactly. So you're right. He says, this time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right and my people in the wrong. Well, no, wait a minute. That's Exodus nine. That was yesterday. So, so he's actually done this before. So he's saying for the second time, I have sinned against the Lord. And then for the second time, when it comes down to it, you know what? I felt bad because of the things that were happening and I don't want them to happen anymore. But now that they're not happening anymore, I, I never mind. I'm going to keep going. And, and isn't that also something that we must reflect on when we look to God for forgiveness? Um, we, we should desire that forgiveness because we know we have sinned and desire to do better. We shouldn't seek forgiveness just for the sake of avoiding punishment. Yeah, it reminds um, me of boys, but, of boys yeah. uh, fighting on the playground and, and the one gets the other in a headlock and he cries uncle. So the guy lets him go and now he's fine. He comes after him again, just keeps going back and forth. <laughs> uncle, he lets right, him go yeah. and he, he comes after him again. Well, let's let's read the rest of the chapter, which you, you said earlier that uh, the swarm of locusts, which darken the sky, is a little bit of a foreshadowing of the darkness of the ninth plague, which is coming. And this ninth plague um, is also striking the chief god. This is the sun god. This is Ray or Amun. This is, you know, next to... Uh, uh, if you were going to sort of attack or get your glory over a god of Egypt that would really make people take notice, it would be the sun god, the source of all life. And so here we go in the verses 21 through 29. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be a darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Serve the Lord. Your little ones may also go with you. Only let your flocks and your herd remain behind. (laughs) But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock must also go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care to never see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. So there's a lot here, you know, but a darkness that can be felt is the first thing that pops into my head. Um, And and they describe it a little bit. But brother pastor, that's that's something I don't think in our modern age we could even get close to. This is supernatural for sure. But on top of it, I just don't. When's the last time you've been in complete darkness? It probably doesn't happen very often. Uh, You know, (laughs) People in in uh, primitive cultures even freak out when there's an eclipse. <laughs> uh, dark, right. Darkness is pretty universally regarded as as something to be avoided, um, or something that portends bad troubles. Um, usually, I mean, unless you're unless you like to be doing things in darkness, like Saint Paul says, you know, you you don't want to be exposed for the dark deeds that you do so here it's it's amazingly clear that there's utter darkness all over egypt but not with the egypt with the israelites there's light yeah that's there. wild i mean that is just that's just a, a very clear indication of the difference between the faithful of god and those who have rejected him they're in darkness but here with god with with Moses, there's light. I mean, he couldn't be couldn't be clearer than that in this. Well, the the last of the nine, and then comes the one from which they cannot turn back. The, it's too late for the for the uh, Egyptians because it's a plague of death coming up. So this is uh, well. Uh, this when is it describes really this the, darkness. The, the darkness is. Oh, uh, yeah. And the fact that it's three days, we shouldn't miss either. Right. Yep. That's what I was going to point out. Yeah. yeah. I mean, God God works in threes. He likes to do things in threes. And the three days, of course, we can't help but think of the three days that, that Jonah was in the belly of the earth and that ultimately uh, Christ predicted and fulfilled when he died and rose again on the third day. And even the three hours of darkness that I brought up earlier on Good Friday, that in itself, like these two plagues, um, points forward to the next three, which is the three days. So, you know, God God is very consistent throughout the history of, of Israel in dealing with things the way he does. And so he got these three days, and that's repeated, I think. You know, this, this threeness you can't miss. 
that by the time you get read, done reading all this, you, you get the clear picture that three days is a big deal. Three days uh, of darkness uh, is kind of hard to miss. <laughs> and, uh, and still Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Yeah, what, and what we shouldn't be surprised by, but we are, is that uh, Pharaoh then still tries to negotiate, right? He's still saying, okay, fine, you can go, but now, you know, you have to leave some herds behind. Like before I said you could go without your kids, now you have to leave your herds behind. And Moses is saying, no, we have to take everybody. Now, maybe you have a reflection on this. You know, is Moses being deceptive to Pharaoh? I mean, it's I'm sure it's surface level true that he doesn't know what the burnt offerings will have to be. But clearly he's just trying to get out of Egypt with everybody and everything. And God's promised him that that's going to happen. But it, it is this. I don't know. I just I don't know how to make sense of this altogether because some people struggle with, you know, well, is Moses kind of, you know, tricking pharaoh and is that how god would want him to do things i don't know what do you think well i think absolutely there's there's no deceit at all here in fact there's a lesson because moses knows that if the israelites are going to go out they dare not go out without god and without their sacrifices which god has commanded in other words i would say right. uh the these the the israelites are not just oh good we're free we can go they are, they're going to be uh, worshiping the one true God as they go. And how do you do that? In Exodus, you do it by offering sacrifices. Of course, a token of the one sacrifice to come. But it's, it's, like, saying, it's like saying what Paul says in Romans. Uh, uh, shall we sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. The, the freedom of the Christian is not a freedom to turn away from God and from worship of him, which is, which is uh, signified by here by the sacrifices. Those are absolutely required for Moses and the people. If they're going to go out in the wilderness and worship their God, how in the world can they do that without the sacrifices? They don't just worship some, some nebulous, deist God, some entity that they, they just call God and they don't know anything about him. This is a God who is worshipped by sacrifice. And ultimately, of course, what that means for us is that the sacrifice of Christ is absolutely necessary and even is necessary for the Israelites, which is why their sacrifices look forward to the once for all sacrifice of Christ. This is, this is not an afterthought on God's part. Sacrifice is central to the worship of of the Israelites and Moses knows that. So, you know, you might be tempted to think, well, he seems kind of deceitful and Moses was suspecting that right earlier on in the chapter. Uh, you just, you're just, you got evil right. intentions here. Well, it may seem that way, but absolutely not. Moses knows he's got to continue to worship God according to God's commands. That's at least that's what I think. Now, as we approach the end of our of our program today, you know, we also approach the end of the text. And one of the things that I what just stands out to me are the last couple verses, you know, Pharaoh's angry and he says to Moses, get away from me. Take care to never see my face again for on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses is like, sure, that's fine. You, know, you I won't see your face again. 
And what's interesting about that is Moses is Pharaoh's best and last hope. And he's sending him away. I, you know, yeah, it's Moses absolutely. is the one true God's representative. And it's just, and, and, and Moses doesn't say, you know, Hey, listen, I'm your best and last hope. He says, as you say, and, and that also gives us insight into, you know, the God hardening Pharaoh's heart too, you know, as you want, just as you want. And this too is a, is a preview, if you call it that of Christ, you know, when they, when they wanted to stone him in John, where, what chapter is that? When they want to stone him and he, he, uh, he went out from them. He passed through the midst of them and so went by. We have this, this gospel on uh, the on Passion Sunday, right? When, when Jesus turns and goes away, and that's why we veil the images. It's, it's I think, a, a preview of that very thing. You know, Pharaoh wants nothing to do with Moses, and Moses says, fine, I'm out of here. Well, not only Moses, but the Almighty God who is and must be with Moses. If you want to find God, find Moses. That's clear. And it's unclear to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh is going to pay dearly for missing that. So, yeah, Moses is <laughs> Moses is just, he's, I, I would imagine he's having fun with him at this point. <laughs> you said it, guy. Well, absolutely. Well, yep. <laughs> yeah, see you later. Well, and that's another thing for us to remember. You know, people might say, well, did Pharaoh believe in Yahweh? And my answer, and you can disagree with me, obviously, but my answer is, yeah, yeah, I think he believed in Yahweh. I, I think he put Yahweh on the shelf with all the other gods he believed in, too. So he believed in Yahweh, but not in the way that the one true God demands. He didn't believe in yeah. him solely. He believed he that he exists. Um, set him apart. Yeah, of course he did. He sees yeah, he the wonders that he's doing. He believed that he exists. You know, even as, as James says, even the demons believe and they shudder, shudder. Right. That's nothing. To, to believe in Precisely God, I believe I in God, the Father Almighty, that's to trust him. That's pistis. That's right. the Greek for trust, for, for confidence, for faith. That's what we Christians mean. As opposed to the world, when we say, I believe in God, it doesn't just mean I believe he exists. That's nothing. It means you put your trust in him, you, you grasp him, you, you, you put your confidence in the God who is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ and the God of Moses and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so forth. So, yeah, that's, that's uh, clearly going on here, I think. Well, brother, we have just a, two minutes left in our program, and I'd like to give both of those minutes to you uh, in that short amount of time. And I know it is uh, just wrap up whatever you'd like to say and maybe share a bit of gospel for our listeners before we conclude today. Sure. Um, well, I've, I've enjoyed this time. I think it's I think it's uh, always edifying to read your Bible with an eye toward finding Christ there, because after all, that's what Jesus says. And I think John 5, search the scriptures, they testify of me. And again, in, um, in the resurrection account in Luke 24, he went through all, he beginning with Moses and the prophets, he showed them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So we are, we are uh, instructed by Jesus himself to look at the scriptures this way. So that when you look at and when you go over the entire history of Israel, you're not just providing a historical 
interesting pathway that ultimately ends up with Jesus' birth and life and death and resurrection. The scriptures themselves provide gospel images in, in hidden ways, in ways that the holy men of God desired to look into, as the writer of the Hebrews said. And they didn't, you know, they scratched their heads, they didn't quite get it. But, but now we have the key to the scriptures, which is Christ. And so it's, it's not a pedantic, it's not a, just a, a, it's not just an exercise that inserts something there that isn't there from the start. It's there. Christ is there. He is there through Moses. He is there through the sacrifices. He is there in the deliverances of, of Israel and the way in which Israel is delivered, always through the, the men whom God appoints. And those men, in greater or lesser ways, are always looking forward to the coming of the promised Savior of the world, whom we now have. Now you could say that the... the uh, the flower is fully opened. The, the tulip is wide open. The, the fullness of time has come. The ultimate revelation of God is upon us. And what is revealed is that the scriptures really are all about Jesus Christ and salvation in him and in him alone. So that's the, uh, I guess that's the way I'd wrap this up, that uh, we can clearly see this then when we look at the, the plagues in this way. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Dr. Burnell Eckhart, pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church in Kewanee, Illinois. He's also the editor-in-chief of Godestines, the Journal of Lutheran Liturgy. You can visit them at godestines.org. That's G-O-T-T-E-S-D-I-E-N-S-T dot org. Thank you, Pastor, for being on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And folks, thank you for joining us today. Tomorrow we'll head into chapter 11 as God threatens Pharaoh with the 10th and what would be the final plague. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word. Amen.